Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening to Knocking Doors Down, brought to you by KDD Media Company. So, you know, you started drinking from then. And if you think about it, from like 12 years old all the way to, you know, to his 70s, he was basically drinking every day, but no one really knew about it. So all the films that you see, according to what the assistant told me, every film, like you watch, you go watch Karate Kid 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever, he was drunk. This episode of the Knocking Doors Down podcast brought to you by Podcorn. Yeah, if you're a podcaster and you've yet to hear about Podcorn, it's been phenomenal for us. It allows us to reach out to sponsors that directly correlate with our show's content. Plus, we get to set our own prices and negotiate with the sponsors themselves. It opens up an amazing opportunity for podcasters just like you and us. Not only does it give you sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, but you can also book interview segments, topical discussions, and more. You want to know what my favorite part is, though? There's no middleman. I don't have to go through another company when we want to talk to a sponsor. We talk to the sponsors directly, and so can you by signing up with Podcorn. It's simple. Podcorn.com to get more info. So if you're like us, and you're a podcaster, and you want to cut out the middleman, no matter how how big your podcast is, there are tons of opportunities for great sponsors. Again, collaborate with these brands directly without any exclusivities. Another one of the great things, no matter how big or small your podcast is, you don't give up any rights to your podcast. And Podcorn, well, they're there to support you every step. They want to ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work you do for your brands. Fellow podcasters, with Podcorn, keep this in mind. Wherever you distribute your show, if it's Apple, Spotify, Google, Pandora, wherever you distribute it, your ads play there and you get credit with Podcorn and the sponsors that work with you. A huge thanks to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of Knocking Doors Down. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast today by signing up at podcorn.com slash podcasters. Again, if you want that link, click it in the podcast description now. Inside the 5150 Studios, this is Knocking Doors Down, Jason Alcoholic. Also been through some other adversities uh, throughout life, including divorce, some sexual trauma, childhood issues, and, well, I am just a, I am a basic textbook. And my co-host, Mikey Naraki, well... Yeah, you know, been busted a time or two. What are you going to do? Well, we take all of those adversities, we turn them to our advantage, much like all of our guests here on Knocking Doors Down. Kevin Derrick, no different, Mikey. Yeah, this was a, uh, I could tell you were fanning out on this one, that's for sure. It is really cool. Kevin Derrick, he is a documentarian, and he did the documentary More Than Miyagi about the life of Pat Morita. Of course, his most famous character ever was uh, Mr. Miyagi in the Karate Kid movies. But unbeknownst to even me, who is a fan, Pat Morita suffered from addiction, which eventually took his life, primarily alcoholism, although he did have stints with drugs as well. But uh, it didn't come without an adverse childhood. I mean, all the trauma and adversity that he went through, it only makes sense that he ended up uh, suffering from addiction. I mean, being in a cast from, what, his shoulders to his ankles for nine years? Yeah. I can't it, even imagine. I had a cast on my arm for six months, and that sucked. Yeah, you'll come to find out how uh, tuberculosis as a kid long before there was a cure. And, of course, once World War II hit, uh, being a Japanese-American and, and uh, Pat Morita's family going into internment camps, 
So you're going to hear some eye-opening stuff, not only about Pat Morita, how he fell into his addiction and alcoholism at an early age, really connected to the trauma that his family was experiencing after World War II, but even Kevin Derrick, an immigrant himself, and some of the struggles that he's gone through. So really an insightful one, entertaining, and of course, if you're a fan of the Karate Kid movies and Mr. Miyagi, this is uh, definitely a must-listen. And of course, we can't do this without 5150 LTM. 5150, get your swag right. That's right. You'll see Mikey and I doing uh, our social media videos and, of course, on the YouTube channel, which hopefully you've subscribed by now. We're wearing 5150 gear. Of course, we couldn't do any of this without them, and you can get it now at 20% off. Just go to 5150LTM.com or click that link in the description and use the code KDD20 for 20% off. Welcoming to Knocking Doors Down, Kevin Derrick. How are you today, good sir? I'm doing fine. How are you guys doing? Excellent. <laughs> Living the dream. <laughs> We're excited to have you on, of course, Kevin, a documentarian. Uh, his film that I just love. I, I mean, you've got an amazing Rotten Tomato score. It's uh, more than Miyagi. It's essentially <laughs> it's the life story of Pat Morita, uh, just a beloved uh, actor, but really shedding a light on some of the dark times and traumas that, that Pat went through in his life. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, we've been lucky with the results that we've been getting with the reviews. I mean, I've never seen 100%, 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I was going to say me uh, either. It, it's incredible. You know, yeah, there is. there was a lot of things that I wanted to show with Pat. It was due to, like, you know, the, our, our... Well, the first version that we had, it was like two hours and a half. And then we ended up having a screening and the people gave us notes and told us, you know, you need to take this out, you need to do this and that. So we had to keep the scenes in there that put, you know, pull the story forward. I mean, there's a lot of things that I wanted to show, for example, you know, Pat's early days and his living conditions with his parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, they lived in a shack with dirt floor. And I think he was mentioning that, you know, they had no refrigeration system. So they would used to hang all of their like rice and bacon and flour and all that stuff. They used to hang it from the ceiling so the rats wouldn't get to it. But, you know, it, it was pretty bad. I mean, he spent nine years of his life in, in a sanitarium uh, from ages two to 11. I mean, I, can you imagine being in a full body cast from your shoulder down to your knee from like ages two to nine? And back then they didn't have a, uh, you know, treatment for tuberculosis. So they figured, you know, we set him out in the sun, hope that he gets vitamin D and that that would basically be his treatment. And they did that for nine years and it didn't really cure him. He, he ended up going to uh, Shriners Hospital. I think he was 11 years old. That's when they did that uh, experimental uh, treatment on his spine. And after a while he was able to, to walk and then, when he started walking, that's when the war happened in 1941. Right. So the FBI comes and takes him from the hospital to the internment camp. I mean, it was brutal because even at the internment camp, when he gets there, his parents are there, but he can't communicate with his parents because in the hospital, they've been speaking to him in English. Right. So when he gets there and they speak Japanese, so they can't communicate. So, you know, he's gone through a lot of different things. I mean, it's understandable that he started, you know, drinking alcohol. Uh, As a matter of fact, his father was making bootleg sake in in the internment camps. Right. And keeping everyone wasted. So, you know, he started drinking from then. And if you think about it, from like 12 years old all the way to, you know, to his 70s, he was basically drinking every day, but no one really knew about it. Yeah. So all the films that you see, according to what the assistant told me, every film, like you watch, you go watch Karate Kid 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever. He was drunk. He was the whole time he was drunk. So and I guess no wonder he got nominated for that scene that, you know, he played that. But anyways, you know, for the most part, everyone says nice things about Pat. I mean, he volunteered his time to the children's hospital and he did nothing but, but good things. So I didn't really want to. I mean, I love Pat. I met Pat one time. Oh, really? And he came across such a nice, warm person that I didn't want to destroy or diminish his character so 
basically yeah basically that's i don't want to talk more than i need to <laughs> right i'm over talking just you know no you're, okay you're, shut the hell up that's it that's enough <laughs> no. you know that's, it's it's really crazy like how acting is already tough enough you know but when you're going in drunk charlie we had spoken with charlie sheen and he said the same thing he would be watching a movie or show of his be like oh yep i was hammered there hammered there it's just like how yeah. how i mean i guess you're just more confident maybe because you're going in like yeah i'm good whatever right, right. But, I, I can kind of relate to that because when we started doing this from i've never been in front of the camera every time i've been in front of the camera i can't even say one word i remember <laughs> the first time I was in college, I was getting gas and the gas prices had gone down to like a dollar and ABC comes in, puts a microphone to my face. Hey, can you talk about why you think the gas prices are so low and all that stuff? And I realized then that, you know, once when the attention is on me, I can't say anything. I, I wasn't able to say like one sentence. So then when this happened with this film and also the prior film, I had to do like publicity. I started drinking, I started taking shots. And when you take shots, it's just, for people who have anxiety, it just calms them down. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm not drunk right now, but if you look at a couple of the previous documentaries, it's just, every time I start laughing, that's like a sign, hey, this kid, this guy's drunk. But anyway, no, I'm not drunk right now. So, <laughs> so it just calms you down. And then I was just, just, you know, it just relaxes you and it makes you able to think better and it processes my brain processes much better when i'm just slightly buzzed sure so i can relate to what why he was drinking sure absolutely i had a 20-year radio career prior to this and and boy i know doing live events or hosting and stuff oh yeah i had to i had to be uh, lubricated so to speak but you really <laughs> you, you really touch on you know pat the, the thing that we've really talked with people about about kevin that your documentary does such great work and and you comprise it real well is trauma from childhood so much with any addiction just stems from our childhood experiences and i mean literally right. like you said pat you know, in a mental institution, not knowing what to do, then the treatments, then World War II hits. And then, you know, it's a sad part of the history of, of the United States, took all of our Japanese Americans and put them into the internment right. camps, essentially right. concentration camps, not quite like right. it was in Germany, but you took them away from their jobs, their families, everybody else. Right. Plus Pat had later trauma kind of finding out actually his parents weren't his parents. Right, right, mother. And yeah, mother at the yeah. same same time, when you when he came out of the internment camp, I mean, you face racism, no matter what you do. It's not just. I mean, back then was worse. That's why they had a Chinese restaurant. They mm -hmm. were Japanese, and they opened up a Chinese restaurant. So I mean, it started back then, but even it still goes on today. I mean, if you look at all all films, all Hollywood films. Uh, they treat to, you know, they seem to treat minorities in, uh, in not such a good light. I mean, it started with the American Indians and then it went to uh, blacks and then it went to Russians, then it went to the Middle East. And uh, for me, I'm from the, I, I was, we came here when I was nine years old mm. um, I'm from Iran. And for me, it's, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, if I'm not talking about media just in general, whether it's Fox or it, all of them, they're all, all of them are biased. So it's, if you've gotten to this condition that when you see a guy with a full beard walking outside, you go, oh my God, he's a terrorist. Sure. Why? Because you've been conditioned to think that a bearded man is a terrorist or the same thing when a woman is wearing the hijab, the same thing. It's, but, you know, it's just it, all minorities go through cycles. So you just have to wait until your cycle is done and then the next one comes up. So the same thing happened to Pat. I mean, if you look at his IMDb on, uh, uh, you know, all the film that he's done after the Karate Kid film, you know, this is it's master this master that right. Karate Dog. And it just goes on and on. <laughs> But, you know, for actors, I guess they're happy that they're getting, you know, being able to work. But at the same time, I I can sense that, you know, he wanted to just be an American, not even like a Japanese American, be an American doctor, be an American 
because he's not even from there. He was an American. He just yeah. happened to look Japanese. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's so many different issues. If it was me and I had gone through what Pat gone through, I would have done something worse. I mean, I would have done cocaine. I would have done heroin. I would have done a whole bunch of things. Yeah, it's, so, it was a yeah, because it really is. It's a multitude of trauma and you'll find that connectivity in a lot of the stories that, that, that we share here. But interestingly enough, and I didn't realize this either, you know, you think, okay, Pat, he, he you know, the World War II ends, families just get out there. Um, but it was funny that you highlight the part where his family, as Japanese, opened a Chinese restaurant because uh, <laughs> it plays later into his career. But he didn't really even start show business till he was 30. 30, right, right, right. That's true. Well, you know, in, in the Asian culture, Middle Eastern culture, Hispanic culture, Family comes first. Whatever they need, we need to be with them, make sure everything is good in order for us to move on. Sure. So it's the same thing with Pat. I mean, his dad needed him. He stuck it out, and then he got a job because, you know, with Asians, they want you to be a lawyer, be, have, you have, be prominent. And so he ended up getting a job at uh, Aerojet. But it's just... Even when he was at Aerojet, he really didn't really want to work there. I heard, um, and I mean, I read in the manuscript that he wrote, he said um, they promoted him to a senior level at Aerojet. And then he was, there was like 50 people working under him. So he didn't necessarily need to be at his work all the time. So he would go to the local, uh, you know, pool hall. And then he started learning pool and he started hustling pool and that's how he was making money. (laughs) So he really didn't enjoy what he was doing. I mean, it got to a point that he said, okay, it's now or never. So when he was 30, he said he was balding and he was gaining weight. He said, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So, and also for like an Asian kid, it's uncommon for, for an Asian kid to go to the entertainment field. Yeah. He was the first Japanese uh, uh, comedian, as far as I know. Yeah, because this was then, uh, this, this was time, the 70s at this point. Early, it was 60s. Oh, it was late 60s, 60s. okay. Yeah. yeah, so I think he opened up a lot of doors for, you know, for the comedians and actors who, who came after him. Yeah, because there really wasn't, there wasn't a multitude of... Uh, ethnicity and comedy at that time really either. I mean, you had, you know, uh, Red Fox was out there and then prior, right. you know, a little bit later on. But uh, but it's pretty interesting how his career kind of uh, came to a crescendo with, you know, Lenny Bruce. I mean, one of the most controversial comedians obviously had right. his, his substance right. issues, which the documentary does a, a great job. Again, for people listening, it's more than Miyagi. You can get it on demand. I bought it on Amazon. It's a multi-time watch, trust me. Um, but where it, it kind of came to head because Lenny Bruce's mom ended up being his manager. Managing, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't really get into that because, for, first of all, all the uh, in the manuscript, he really doesn't mention that much about Lenny Bruce. Mm. And he only mentioned Sally Moore and how Sally Moore helped helped him with you know taking acting lessons and sending him to different uh, auditions and stuff. So I didn't really pursue that side of it because it would have gone to the other direction and it wouldn't have pushed the story forward. Sure. So because of that, I kind of didn't really you know mention that much about Lenny Bruce and all that stuff. But in, in his manuscript, it's so well detailed about all the, his, you know, his whole life that that would make a great miniseries on, uh, uh, you know, on Netflix or something like that. And sure. that's something that I might pursue after this. Hey, I would watch that. Uh, I was joking with, uh, <laughs> with uh, I think, Mikey the other day about, you know, that darn Netflix. As soon as I start to get through stuff, I'm like, ah, I can switch. Then they put something else out. So if you did that. Right, right. Right. <laughs> you would true. have my attention. Um, well, let's kind of uh, fast forward a little bit. I think where probably a lot of people know uh, Pat Morita, at least, you know, I know for me, uh, my dad was a big Happy Days person. And interestingly enough, uh, Gary Marshall, uh, Pat wouldn't be the first subject matter on this podcast that had an impact. We had a former guest, Shanda Renee, who Gary Marshall gave her her first shot. But wow. that was so significant of of Gary Marshall bringing Pat Morita in 
to play Arnold on Happy Days. Right, right, right. It was. They knew each other prior to, I don't know how they originally met, but I think he went on audition for this one pilot show that Gary was doing with uh, Penny Marshall. Uh, it was called Wives. I've never saw it, and I looked into it to see what it was about. I really couldn't find any information. So they did the pilot, but it didn't go anywhere. But uh, looking at all like Gary's work, it seems like Pat Morita was like the token minority. I mean, he would try to use Pat on any uh, a sitcom that he was doing. I think there was another one that was called Bolanski's Beauties or something. And then Charles in Charge or Joni Loves Chachi, he was in there. But for the majority of what uh, Gary was doing, I mean, he did the Dick Van Dyke show. He did the Odd Couple, Angie, Mork and Mindy, uh, Love American Style which that was all uh, basically geared towards, there, there was no minorities in any of those. And then he did try to do the um, the new odd couple, which was two black uh, leads, which was, I think was Di Diamond Williams and Ron Glass or something like sure. that. So, and that was the only attempt that he did to bring minorities, but I don't think the audience was ready to, you know, accept black leads back then. Right. But at least he tried. <laughs> and he's a very nice person, too. Gary Marshall is a nice person. Yeah, I would have loved to have been able to meet Gary Marshall. We um, were going to interview them. Unfortunately, a lot of people passed away during the time that we were doing. John Avildsen died, you know, a yeah. year after we started shooting. The director of The Karate Kid and Gary Marshall. Penny Marshall was going to do it. And we had time to set it up but then she passed away and a whole bunch of people his yeah. agent arnie passed away unfortunately Jeez. so all of his detail of his early years we could never get so i had to rely on you know the interviews and i um, mean the the audio clips of stuff that we have yeah well it, it, the funny thing though is is getting that chance as arnold of course there was a, a I, I just love it if you could tell the story of how how Pat navigated Arnold was going to be canceled from the show. Right, right, right. And I don't fully remember the circumstances, but it's hilarious what he did and how his family history of owning a Chinese restaurant played in. I think he says it better than I can. I don't think I can say it in such a nice accent that he pulls it off, but that's in the documentary. Back then, there was this one organization that was called Standards and Practices. So whatever you were, like he was Japanese and he had to only play Japanese leads, Japanese uh, characters. You couldn't play Chinese. So in Arnold, when Arnold started, Gary Marshall, the day of the shoot, uh, Gary Marshall told Pat, you know, pick an accent, pick whatever accent that you want. And the only accent that he was familiar with was the Chinese accent because they had a Chinese restaurant and his cook had a Chinese accent. So I said, okay, I'll do the Chinese accent. So they started doing like multiple shows. And at the end of the week, uh, the standards and practices, the people show up and say, hey, you can no longer be in Happy Days because you're a Japanese guy playing a Chinese dude. So, and then he said his uh, actor acting survival kicks in and he starts making up his story and he says, yeah, Arnold, Arnold, uh, Arnold, my last name is Takahashi, his, his <laughs> Japanese last name. And then he said, my mother was, uh, was uh, I don't know, my, my mother was Chinese and he got knocked up by a Japanese colonel in World War II. And then my mother took me and raised me in Milwaukee. That's where he taught me English. And basically that's how Arnold came to be. And then he said at the end of the meeting, they said, Oh, okay. I'll buy that. That makes sense. <laughs> I'll buy that. That'll, we could work with that. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's just amazing that someone that that literally, as the document documentary lays out from you know that time in that internment camp, you know, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, uh, you know, consuming alcohol each day, but was to still be so brilliant and creative at the same time. Um, you know, I watching, I always wonder, boy, if with, with the resources that are out there now, if it was, to, you know, if they've taken back in time, if, you know, we would have gotten a different result. But that's kind of a, a digression. Um, let's jump into the interesting 
uh, kind of tie in with you because uh, Pat Morita, of course, uh, when he finally lands the role of Mr. Miyagi, one of those just iconic roles. I don't know. I'd probably watch the first Karate Kid at least once a year. But you kind of have a tie in because of Pat Morita's stunt double, Fumio Demura. Right, right. Um, so, okay, let me go back to, okay, so basically the way it started, uh, we, we came here from uh, Iran, we came to United States, we, lived, we came to Anaheim in 1977, and then two years later, after we came, the uh, revolution happened in Iran, the wow. hostage stuff, I don't know if you remember that. Yes. So when the hostages started happening, I was like, I was like nine, 10 years old here. So a few days later, we started getting all this hate stuff. People went and sprayed on our garage door, go back home. And then I was getting beaten up at school. And even though, you know, we had nothing to do with this and this was way in the other side of the country. So, and then my dad says, you know what, uh, let's go sign you and your brother up for martial arts. So we go to the local YMCA's, like walking distance. I go and I take a liking to it. I like martial arts and my brother, my brother is a little more educated and he's, and he's a doctor and stuff like that right now. He said, what the hell is this? I don't want to do martial <laughs> arts. <laughs> so anyways, I liked it and I continued it for a long time. So. The teacher that was at YMCA, his instructor was Fumio Demura. So every time we had to test for like yellow belt, purple belt, black belt, we went to Fumio Demura's uh, dojo, which that was the main dojo. So I became friends with Fumio Demura. And Fumio Demura, for those who don't know who he is, he's basically the stunt double of uh, Pat Morita. He did all of the Karate Kid films, O'Hara series yeah. and everything. So they were pretty good friends. So that's how I know Fumi Demura. So basically me getting beat up is kind of like Ralph. And, but I have my own, uh, you know, Mr. Miyagi, which was Fumi Demura. So I'm the real life karate kid, I guess. <laughs> we'll be back more with Kevin Derrick. Not only will we talk about Pat Morita's widow and what some of her influence on the documentary was, as well as uh, Kevin's own adverse situations, having been a, a child of immigrant parents coming to this country when certain wars broke out. He faced some very similar situations to what uh, Pat Morita probably faced in his early informative years, plus random questions with Kevin. This episode of the Knockin' Doors Down podcast brought to you by Podcorn. Yeah, if you're a podcaster and you've yet to hear about Podcorn, it's been phenomenal for us. It allows us to reach out to sponsors that directly correlate with our show's content. Plus, we get to set our own prices and negotiate with the sponsors themselves. It opens up an amazing opportunity for podcasters just like you and us. Not only does it give you sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, but you can also book interview segments, topical discussions, and more. You want to know what my favorite part is, though? There's no middleman. I don't have to go through another company when we want to talk to a sponsor. We talk to the sponsors directly, and so can you by signing up with Podcorn. It's simple. Podcorn.com to get more info. So if you're like us, and you're a podcaster, and you want to cut out the middleman, no matter how big your podcast is, there are tons of opportunities for great sponsors. Again, collaborate with these brands directly without any exclusivities. Another one of the great things, no matter how big or small your podcast is, you don't give up any rights to your podcast. And Podcorn, well, they're there to support you every step. They want to ensure that you're protected and compensated for the work you do for your brands. Fellow podcasters, with Podcorn, keep this in mind. Wherever you distribute your show, if it's Apple, Spotify, Google, Pandora, wherever you distribute it, your ads play there and you get credit with Podcorn and the sponsors that work with you. A huge thanks to Podcorn for sponsoring this episode of Knocking Doors Down. Explore sponsorship opportunities and start monetizing your podcast today by signing up at podcorn.com slash podcasters. Again, if you want that link, click it in the podcast description now. The Knockin' Doors Down book shares all the history and inspiration behind the Carlos Vieira Foundation and how it all started. All proceeds from the book benefit the Carlos Vieira Foundation's Race to Be Drug-Free campaign. So what's that all about? Through the Race to Be Drug-Free campaign, 
Carlos Vieira Foundation raises awareness about drug abuse, donates to drug-free programs, and brings drug-free speakers into schools to educate youth. The Race to Be Drug-Free campaign's main program is the Gloves Not Drugs boxing program. This program is completely free for kids between the ages of 8 and 17 to learn discipline, strength, respect, camaraderie, and the art of boxing and Brazilian jiu-jitsu. The program was created to keep kids off the streets, out of gangs, and away from drugs. For more info and to get involved, check out carlosvierafoundation.org. Was there stuff that Fumio may have talked to you about concerning Pat, especially maybe with the, you know, seeing his addiction that, that maybe didn't make the cutting room floor? I mean, there was some really great stuff in the film. You know, with Japanese people, when it become when it's personal, they never share personal stuff from mm-hmm. somebody else. Even when we were doing his documentary, I had a hard time trying to get information from the from Yudema's sister, from, from no one. And then uh, I, we got, I don't know if you've seen, you've seen the real Miyagi, right? Yeah. Where mm-hmm. the brother uh, starts talking about the rice, how they had to sell uh, the mother's kimoto to raise money to buy rice because they were so poor. So we ended up this time, I said, let's take a new approach. Let's take the brother somewhere else, far away from everybody else, to see if he would open up and tell us stuff. And he did, because everyone was downstairs and no one was hearing what he was saying. <laughs> so he opened up. So the same thing with Sensei, being in being Japanese, they don't want to say anything bad about anybody else. So basically, the, the extent of what I got from Sensei is when I talked to him about Pat, he would just go, you know, Pat, too much. <laughs> That's all he would say. He wouldn't say anything else. <laughs> So, <laughs> oh shit! Oh, that's too much. Yes. So yeah, I couldn't get anything from Sensei. I mean, Sensei, everyone loves Sensei. Sensei doesn't say anything bad about anyone, and no one says anything bad about Sensei Tamura. Yeah. So that's as far as I got with Sensei. Well, and for, for again, for those that are listening, also check out the the real Miyagi, uh, the other uh, documentary, one of the other ones that Kevin did. It's it's really great stuff. Let's talk a little bit more about about Pat's family also the other thing you know it's great that his wife was in there she seemed incredibly gracious with her time and and vulnerability um but you know he had had other marriages too um in there and I'm sure that might have been something that really you know as someone has gone through divorce and it is closely related to some of my uh, addiction issues that uh, that was probably pretty heartbreaking for him it was, it was. You know, originally when I did the research about, about the whole family, uh, Ali Morita had written an article talking about his father and his addiction. And I said, oh, wow, if she's open to all that stuff, maybe we can, she could be the driving force in the documentary. And then we hit her up and she declined. She said, you know, I don't want to get involved because blah, 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 blah. And I said, okay, I understand. And what I've learned through doing projects is when I approach someone and they're not immediately excited about being part of the project, I never try to convince them because Mm -hmm. once I start convincing them, it always backfires and it turns into sabotage. So I just said, okay, great. Thank you so much. So we ended up uh, doing research on Catherine. Catherine was his first wife, but she's not... This was four years ago, and she she's in a hospital, mm. and she can't really remember much. So unfortunately, we weren't able to interview interview her. And then the second wife, which has two daughters, Allie and Tay, and she didn't want to say anything. So I just respect that. If you don't want to be part of it, great. I mean, sure. I would love to know more about Pat from your angle, but if you don't want to do it, that that's great. So right. that's basically... It, and the last wife, which is Evelyn, she was open to everything because she owns the state and she basically had all the photos, videos, and we went to her house and we went to Pat's room and she shared everything with us, everything. So without her, we couldn't have done this. There's no way. Uh, we would have just had to resort to like footage and stuff that we find on YouTube and stuff like that. But without her and my producer, Oscar Alvarez, this would have never happened. Yeah, Evelyn. It, even though she uh, obviously, you know, many years with Pat and 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 his addiction. Of course, there's a really 
prominent story that's highlighted in the documentary uh, more than Miyagi folks you know you need to see it to really get the full scope about the the happy days reunion but she never seemed like angry with Pat almost as if she understood all the trauma that he went through and she just genuinely loved him and, and accepted that he did he did he did I mean she did I'm sorry <laughs> yeah they, they, they both loved each other um I mean, what she says in the in the film, she says alcoholism is like any other disease, any other addiction. Uh, just because someone has cancer, you don't say, oh, my God, I don't love you anymore. I mean, alcoholism is, is the same thing. So basically what she started doing towards the end of his life is that he didn't remember when he drank. He did certain things like he would come home and open up the car door and he would just fall and sleep in the garage. Or he would he would doing he was doing like weird stuff. So she started taking pictures of all this stuff so she can show him, hey, this is what you're doing. That when you drank, you came home, you you did this, you did that. That's the part I didn't want to show in the documentary. I mean, I I I, I had a lot of conflicts with what I saw and what I wanted to show, and there was a lot of things that. I mean, you can't blame him. I mean, when you're drunk, you do things. When I'm drunk, I do a lot of things. So I just didn't think that that was fair. And yeah, they did love each other. They did through all the videos that I saw, all the pictures, everything that Pat said in the videos, you could truly see that they loved each other. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that, Kevin, because, <clears throat> excuse me, I mentioned that, that when we were button. watching too. When I saw that, I was like, "That? why is she taking pictures of him doing that? It's almost kind of like, I don't know the right word for it, but it, it didn't seem right that she would. I mean, I know that was her way of trying to show him like, hey, you can't deny it. I took a picture of it. This is it. But it's almost kind of like a form of blackmail almost. No, no, no. She wasn't. She wasn't doing that at all. Because when I talked to her, talked to other people, mm -hmm. that wasn't her intention. When the, there's a part at the very end where he says she went back to the hotel and she saw him lying on the ground, all you know, looked like a homeless and all that stuff. Right. I had a picture that she had taken of him somewhere else that he was on the floor and was laying down like a homeless. I put that in there. I put that in our first version. Mm -hmm. And then someone who was there, he was a critic for one of the Japanese magazines. He said, you know, why did why did Evelyn take the time to take the picture of this of him lying there like a homeless person? I don't think that's right. And I told him, no, that's the, this is not in the picture of his picture for you know from from somewhere else. So because of what he said and another person said the same thing, I decided to take all the pictures out, mm -hmm. which I just thought that, you know, you might see it and think something, somebody else might see it and think something else. So I just didn't want people thinking anything at all. Right, so right. <laughs> yeah. See, whereas so, for me, Kevin, I, you know, I remember I was glad you brought that up because I remember Mikey's reaction when she was talking about that. Whereas for me... Uh, you know, we were sitting in a work thing mm -hmm. and I was talking about a situation where I met a, a, a famous basketball player, um, uh, Brad Doherty. He also owns a NASCAR team, which I'm a fan of the sport. Met him in, in Anaheim right. and um, I don't, I know I met him because I have a photo, but I also see how bloated my face had gotten from how much I was drinking. And so for me, it, it was is a good thing that I still have some of those and I'll go back and look at them because I remember how it can go so wrong. And I and right. so I kind of I kind of saw that as a loving thing that Evelyn was doing like what Pat, Pat right. this you know you're not remembering it but this is what you're really doing, you know. So I see it in a totally different light than I think other people she, would. Right, right. She tried. She tried. And he actually went to um to get help uh the last year of his life he went to god i don't remember what it what where it was and it was a famous person that that has a talk radio show dr it's on k-rock the guy that talks dr drew dr drew yes yeah. dr drew had a place that he went there for three months for three months and he was he was sober after he came out he was still sober for like another three months but what happened was he wasn't getting any work because he was in his 70s now so he had to find a source of income so he went and started doing stand-up comedy for a, a, a hotel in las vegas 
But you know how Las Vegas is. I went and saw the stage. I actually went and shot the whole thing, but we never ended up using it. Is that where the stage was 10 feet away is a bar. So, you know, what happens when you start doing stand-up comedy, the, your audience wants to come and, hey, cheer, cheers to this, cheers to that. They buy you a drink. And then he started drinking again, and then it relapsed, and it then became really worse. And then after that, that's what uh, led to his demise. Yeah. So, Well, and I, and I think that's uh, one of the great things about this, what you did with the documentary. Like you said, it's, it's not a write-off into the sunset. Although there, there still is that that hope there because Pat, you know, his wife Evelyn talks about how Pat wanted her to finish his memoir so that somebody wouldn't go down if it's helping just one person not go down the same road as him. Right, right, right. And the unfortunate thing is that he was working on that manuscript. I have, I think, I have like maybe fifty some odd pages here. Uh, the last 20 pages that he was working on, he was doing it in, in a hotel room and there was a guy in there with him, a roommate or something. And then he ended up stealing the last 20 pages. So oh, I have no shit. idea what he was writing. So that's kind of sad. So he basically told Evelyn, hey, this is what I have. Uh, you know, try to finish the rest. I mean, you know, the rest of my life, how it happens, finish it up, get it out as a book, a manuscript do a documentary and all that stuff. And that's how this whole thing came to be about because when we were shooting the Fumia Demra project, I was I wanted to get a point of view from Pat. So Evelyn was the only person. So we went to Vegas and we interviewed uh, Evelyn. And then after the interview, she said, hey, Kevin, I don't know if you know, but you know, Pat saw his father get hit by a truck and dragged for miles and right. stuff like that and a whole bunch of other things. And that kind of stayed with me. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when the documentary came out on Netflix, she saw it. She said, oh, my God, this made me so emotional. And then that's when I said, I'm going to hit her up and ask her if she wants to do a documentary on Pat. So I did. I asked her and she said, you know, Kevin, I'm thinking of doing a biopic, doing a feature narrative on on that. I said, well, why don't we do a documentary first? Because it's not going to cost us $10 million to do a documentary. Right. Let's do the documentary first <laughs> and then see what it, what, you know, it, what it generates. And if there's people interested, then we can do the feature film. She said, oh, yeah, that makes sense. So let's do that. And then four years, five years later, here we are and it's done and it's out there. So we'll see what happens from here. Yeah, well, it's a it's an excellently done documentary film. I and and not just if you're a fan of of Pat's work or the Karate Kid, but just really a human story. And it, if there's any, you know, lots of our listeners maybe they've struggled with addiction or someone they know and love, really pick it up. Video on demand. Like I said, I I bought it on Amazon and watched it a couple of times, and it's just incredibly well done. Oh, thank you. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit more about you, Kevin. That's interesting. I had a very uh, special woman in my life that uh, was in a relationship. Her parents were from Tehran, and he can come over the same time as you. Um, so oh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so what what uh, what was the was your parents just kind of facing that everything that was going on there in the country? No, 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 no. There was nothing going on. There was absolutely nothing going on. With my, my uncles came in the 60s, all okay. my uncles. So everyone already had come here in the 60s. And my brother was uh, uh, around uh, 15, 16. And he said, it's it's a great idea to bring Kurosh, which is my brother, here to the U.S. That way he can get like the best education. Hmm. So then we, um, you know, sold everything. And then we came here. The, the, the funny thing is like, when we came for about a year and a half, people would ask us, where are you from? I would say, I'm from Iran. They would, there's two, two responses. Either they say, wow, I've never heard of that place. And, or the other response would be, oh, yeah, we just came back, vacationed in Iran for two weeks. But now you say, so you're from Iran. <laughs> oh, my God, it's one of those. <laughs> right. So, yeah, so basically, and and that's, I've, I've finished this year. That's what I've been working on. You know, whoever wants to become a filmmaker, they, they have a passion project that yeah. they want to do. And this is my passion project. I finished doing the first draft while everyone was in COVID and I couldn't do anything. 
So that's one of the projects that I want to hopefully get made. So once that's done, I, I think it's going to be really good. I mean, it's an angle that we haven't seen before. It's basically how something that happens in the other side of the world changes this little kid's life that's 10 years old. So anyways, I'm getting to that point where getting a little emotional. So oh, I completely can understand. <laughs> I, I could only imagine, you know, there's certain things for me that, uh, you know, it'll hit those it's hot hard. buttons. It's hard. Just, just imagine you're nine years old, you come home and on your garage door, someone has sprayed, go home. Yeah. You're nine years old. Have you like, how do you explain to your kid what that means? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's not just that. It's just a whole bunch of other things that went along with that that, that just kind of stuck with me. Yeah. So every time I go out, I'm always aware of my surroundings. Am I the only brown person here? Or why isn't there this? Why is that guy looking at me? So it's just it just messed up my whole point of view. But and e even if you look at every film that I do, there's always a segment on racism. There's sure. I put in a couple of minutes of because that's who I am, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's it's important to, to put out that, you know, and it's funny, not funny, <laughs> but I can draw similarities and I know Mikey can too of when you have traumas is that you get almost a hypervigilance to certain things, right. be right. it trust or like you said, surroundings. I'm still a person that <laughs> Preferably, if I'm in a restaurant, I like to have my back against the wall and be able to see That's the doors. Right. And right. you know, so it, it it's it's weird, you know, those little things. But I think the work that you're doing, and and I've only seen two of your your films, so I, you know, I look forward to seeing more. Is that you are putting your personal stamp on there? And that was kind of my question: What, what got you into wanting to be a filmmaker? Oh, very simple. I can remember that day. Um, it was in the 80s, and that's when the camcorder came out. I don't know if you remember. They used to have, like, a big-ass camera. Oh, yeah, my dad had, had one of those. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was that, and also there was something you had to carry on your shoulder yeah. to put the tape in there. Uh -huh. yep. so, and that was, like, 2000 bucks. It was 1000 for this, 1000 for the camera. And I said, where the hell am I going to get $2,000? <laughs> So I ended up selling everything. I sold my bike. I sold my comic book collection. I borrowed money. So I ended up getting that $2,000 and I bought it. And then I went around the neighborhood. Back then I was in karate. So I went and knocked on people's doors. And when the kids came out, they said, hey, buddy, you want to be in a movie? I said, sure. What do I need to do? I said, well, I have a lot of karate gears at home. You want to just put one of those things on and we'll just do a karate film. And back then, uh, Enter the Dragon was like the biggest thing. So I said, I, okay, we're going to call it Enter the Black Belt instead <laughs> of calling Enter the Dragon, Enter the Black Belt. So anyways, I got everyone together, and then we just did a stupid story. Everyone did contests. We were fighting each other for no reason. You know, we're 12 years old. <laughs> Throwing stars, throwing knives, and all that stuff. <laughs> so we edited it and we showed it the same night to basically whoever wanted to come over. So even though it was stupid, people were laughing. They were having a good time. And back then, I was really shy. And it just kind of clicked. Yeah. It said, wow, I can make people feel a certain way by showing them what I've created. And basically, that was the day I decided that, you know, this is for me. That's incredible. So I just, I went to film school and I did a whole bunch of low budget films. I mean, if you look at IMDb, there's a whole bunch of, none of them. I don't recommend you watching any of them. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, they're out there. It's an experience, you know. The first one I did was called The Ultimate Game. I mean, I have TJ Storm in there. He's done Conan the Barbarian and, and a whole bunch of other people who have been established. You know, it's a story, but, you know, it's, it's all experience leading up to what I'm trying to do now, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Hey, hey, as someone that went to film school as well, the major for acting for the camera, minor directing, so I know what you mean. Uh, oh, wow. What, what film school? Where did you go to? Uh, CSUMB. It's uh, Cal State University, Monterey Bay. So the uh, the initial program, um, uh, Luis Valdez, who did uh, um, La Bamba, he was kind of one of the initial people that got that program going to get going. Which ironically, I went to junior high with his son Lachine, who's in the film, um, and Lachine uh -huh. still works in in arts and film and. 
So yeah, I kind of bounced around for a long time, but ever since I was a kid, there's two movies, uh, Star Wars and Jaws, that changed my life. You know, as a three, four year old kid, and and so it was always a huge passion. And I just right. fell into radio, so kind of ended up turning that uh, that mistake into a twenty year career. Well, if it's your passion, don't give up. Just do whatever. Do a short film. You can shoot films with your phone. You can just just keep at it. I was going to say phones years you know but you know if you don't if it's in you it's in you that's all you can do i mean i can't do anything else so <laughs> you know it's just, and i tell people you know going to film school is not necessary i think personally it's a waste of time it's better just to go being an intern at someone at some some studio wash dishes but mail room whatever and just yeah. work your way up and if you end up going to a film school, go to USC. Don't go to other places because all the connections, everyone that has money is at USC or Chapman, Chapman in Orange County. That's very good. And another thing is volunteer in all of those people's films. There's going to be, what, 100 people yeah. become their friends, all, all 100 friends. Work for free for all of them because the chances of them succeeding out of the hundred, there's only going to be two people that are going to succeed. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is going to be like you and me, where we end up doing something else, and then eventually we come back. So you know, <laughs> you gotta you gotta be friends with all of those people. So that's yeah. my that's my two cents. It doesn't mean you have to do that, but and another thing is when you go to film school, don't try to be go in as a director or go in as a producer. Do something else. Do sound. Do uh, makeup. Do uh, set design because a lot of people that i know that have succeeded as a director producer they started a set design because no one wants to do that <laughs> so once you establish yourself as set design you get to make friends and eventually work your way up yeah oh no thank you and it's true and it's with anything that you want to pursue any passion right. whatever it is you know it only took me 40 years to find that out so <laughs> <laughs> uh, welcome to the you know that's the funny thing you mentioned that kevin i was joking about this with these guys the other day you know i I got a degree that basically says, uh, would you like fries with that? But then here I am now doing this podcast. I get to do <laughs> video editing again for the first time in a long time, <laughs> making a YouTube channel. Uh, um, any uh, any other exciting future projects that you're looking towards that maybe you can share anything about? Or are we still focusing? Well, you know, I'm open to any... Since this thing has come out, every day I get an email about someone who wants to do a documentary about certain things. Gosh, what dude. I'm interested in is is actors, people who I grew up with in the '80s. Let's like for Chuck Norris, uh, singers that I like, Journey. You know, things that yeah. I grew up with in the '80s. I would love to do documentary on on any of those people, but. <clears throat> In terms of films, it's the one that I'm working on, the, the, the script that I have. So hopefully when that's done, I'm going to try to get funding and start working on that. Well, that's great. I think it's a you know your personal story that so many can uh, relate to. That uh, hopefully we get that out there soon, and you know we can we can discuss that when that comes to fruition. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That sounds great. All right. Well, uh, Mike, anything else before we jump to some fun uh, <clears throat> random questions? No. Let's get into it. All right. You're up first. All right. Uh oh. These if are just fun, Kevin. Just off the top of your head, just have fun with it. If they were to make a movie about you, who would you cast to play you? Uh, George Clooney. <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> Love Clooney. <laughs> go with the bad, go with go with the good looking. Oh, huh? yeah. <laughs> oh shoot. Okay. Uh, let me see. Um, what is something about you that people would be surprised to learn that we haven't kind of revealed here already? Uh, I'm generally shy person. Uh, I love martial arts, black belt in martial arts in like three different styles. Wow. Uh, that, that, that's about it. That's about it. Otherwise, keep it simple, huh? I <laughs> keep it simple, yeah. All right. If you could travel anywhere in time, but you had to stay there, where would it be and why? Oh, in the 80s, because it was so peaceful and there was no internet access. There was no phones. People were actually going out and talking and playing with each other. And... Dude, I am right there with you. I would go yeah. back in time because we know it was dope. We could breathe without masks and stuff. Some people say they want to go into the future, and I'm like, 
Man, no, I'm afraid no, to feel what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> we know the 80s will, was cool. Well, I, I was born in the late 80s, so I don't know. I was little, but I heard it was dope. I heard it was a good time. <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> I mean, even 70s were good. 70s were good. 60s, I don't remember anything, but I would say early 80s were my favorite. Yeah. Yeah, well, I was a 70s baby, so I had a good time in the 80s, you know. All of my favorite movies came out of that era, pretty much, and right, music right, and right. everything that right. inspired me, you know. Um, but just try to imagine if those films that you like came out now, no one would watch them. Yeah. Like, imagine Karate Kid. Karate Kid, if it came out now, people would say, what the hell is this? This is so slow and boring. Yeah. But, you know. And well, and that's the wonderful beauty of going back and watching it. I'm like, oh, I love. Pa There's a difference between slow and boring and good pacing, and it had good pacing. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you could have one superpower, what would it be? Uh, read people's minds. Oh. Have we one. gotten that before? I don't think so. Why? 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 Uh, do you, you know. I can, I, it might sound weird or stupid, but when I'm with someone, I can feel what they're feeling. Sure. So I, I mean, uh, but if you can read people's minds that way, when you're in situations, you know what they're thinking, if it's bad thoughts, get away, do something else. Or if they're thinking of something, maybe you can change their mind or just a whole bunch of, you can do a whole bunch of things. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of maybe even with the work you do and why you do documentaries is you got a you know an empath of sorts, you know. Right, exactly. Like when we have a screening, I always tend to sit in the back. Like you know, when we have like a test screening, just by people's the vibe and the way they move their head, their hands, I can tell what they're thinking. You like go off so, their energy. You could feel their energy. Their energy, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. I, got I don't know if it's me or everyone, but. You know, my kids have the same thing. They can feel when they pass by someone, they can feel what they're feeling. Yeah. So, you know. Yeah, that's a trip. Um, any pet peeves? Could be minor as hell or big ones, just ones that stand out to you. <laughs> when someone, someone says, oh, that's cute. Yes. <laughs> 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 I can't I can't think of any it's just a stupid story is that I I was in a in college and it was a speech class and our instructor comes and says okay after the break you guys come back and you talk about your pet peeve and I'm thinking about what I pet peeve I so I dropped the class <laughs> I ended up taking another class so I really don't have an answer to that there's nothing really that <laughs> nothing that i can think of okay kevin that sh that shit is funny <laughs> you can have some of mine because i got a million I, I didn't i didn't have i now i've dropped a lot of classes in my day but i never had it as simple as oh fuck i can't think of a pet peeve forget it i'm dropping the class <laughs> oh all right mikey wrap it up with one more here it's your turn it's my turn you handle it wrap oh, it up all right um do you have a favorite curse word? No, not another fit. No, not a favorite. Well, <laughs> it, in 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 Farsi, our curse words are very descriptive. It's sure. like when you when I get upset, uh, I don't know who are you gonna show this video to because I mean I can say some stuff that is pretty bad. Okay, so. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so maybe you can cut it out. There, there is a saying that we say like "kilachatikunet," which means my wife always said, "What, what does that mean?" It, it, it basically means a donkey's, you know, <laughs> up your whatever. Uh, I, I heard it before. Of, all of our, yeah, all of our uh, bad words are very descriptive. It's either your mother is a this or your sister <laughs> has this, and it's not like a regular f you and stuff like that. All right. So, now, when I'm cussing at people, I say that. No, I'm oh, no, yeah. just kidding. <laughs> I, I've actually, I've actually heard that saying before. Now that you mention it, I had someone I, translate. When I, I was driving one time, and I said that someone was pulled in front of me, I said, and then my son was like five years old. And then he started learning this thing, and he went to one of his friend's house that the mother speaks Farsi, <laughs> and then. He said, hey, uh, do you know what Kilachatikunet means? And she says, what the? <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, 
Uh, Kevin, we always like to leave the the guests with the, the kind of last words of, of encouragement, and and I think that kind of what uh, what Pat's wife said about the best things in life begin from the worst things in life, but not without hope and effort. Um, effort, dreams, yeah. Is there anything more that you can kind of offer, maybe off your own personal journey and your journey through making this film? Sure. Um, well, there's different things I can say. I mean, always make a film, make a film for yourself. Don't make it for the audience because you're never going to please the audience. They're always going to give you thumbs down no matter what the hell you do. Mm -hmm. So make something that you enjoy watching yourself. Like for me, late at night when I'm on Amazon, I click and I see my own title and I said, huh, I like that. Let me watch it. <laughs> so believe it or not, I end up watching it and I watch the whole thing, even though I've seen it 5,000 times. But why? Because I enjoy watching it. And I'm hoping that what I enjoy, there's like millions of other people who kind of enjoy what I like to watch. Yeah. And then another thing, I have a lot of friends who have big egos. I mean, mm -hmm. Big ego. So one of my favorite saying is, you know, the only thing that stands between you and success is your ego. Yeah. So just make sure you bring that ego a couple of notches down. That's about it. Well, Mr. Derek, thank you very much, man. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Mr. Derek. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anytime. Kevin Derek, thank you again for your time. What a what a cool guy. I hope to meet him in person sometime. Just sit down and break bread. You know what's crazy is back then, um when we referred to then. Pat Morita. Yes. He the medicine they would use for him is vitamin D. That's right. it. Just sit him out in for the For tuberculosis. Sun. Isn't that crazy when you think about it? Like how far we've come yeah. to like now it's it's just insane. Oh, well, he's got tuberculosis. Okay, we'll put him in the sun. Yeah, we get a shot. Like, what the fuck? And of course, you know, as as Kevin laid out, and if you watch more in the documentary, um, more than Miyagi, uh, you know, it was is ex experimental at the time. This was in the late thirties, mm -hmm. uh, you know, early forties. Um, you know, Shriners Hospital, of course, a lot of that in the Bay Area, not too far from us, mm -hmm. and you know, it's just it's it's pretty crazy that uh, you know he could have died of. TB, and then of course you know Pat Morita having tuberculosis. Once he gets you know the the surgery that's done, he can walk. And then all of a sudden, World War II is here, and his family's whisked away to an internment camp. Uh, you know, and then in that camp, his dad, of course, making the uh, the bootleg sake, and mm -hmm. and so here it is because you know they're kind of like we don't know if we're getting out. There was tons and tons. One of the things we didn't talk about: tons and tons of people dying in these internment camps oh, yeah. all the time. So it kind of makes sense that it's like, all right, here's my son. Hey, whatever. You know, people, you know, it makes sense that they would be in such a downtrodden situation, getting drunk, high, whatever it was, and then released out into the world. And, he, you know, there wasn't the kind of mental help then that there is now. And, you know, he never broke out of that cycle of those traumas. Uh, him, Pat Morita. Yeah, and you know what's crazy too? Going back to Charlie Sheen, talking back to the alcohol, him with Pat Morita as well, they were drunk in a lot of the scenes of a yeah. lot of movies and TV shows that they've done, and it just goes to show how incredible of actors they are to, I had no idea. Like, yeah. Charlie Sheen would point out, oh, I was drunk here, I was drunk there. Pat Morita said, I was drunk the entire time. Yeah. I, if not drunk, drinking the entire yeah. time. And I would have had no idea. You know, except the scene where he was hammered in, what was it? Karate Kid in the first one. That was the first one, a, yeah. Yeah, there's one where it's really... That yeah. scene, you know, obviously. But, you know, even even with that scene, I thought he would have just played a really good drunk guy, you know? But it's just, it goes to show the incredible talent that these people have to be that intoxicated and still be that fantastic of an actor. Yeah, well, and, and we don't know necessarily the severity of the drunkenness. Maybe it was that, you know that initial kind of buzz not everybody's a total just get plastered right away kind of person i was i was a you know drink till i get drunk and fall asleep kind of a thing but some people they have a different way of doing it where they wake up and they just can throughout the day and they seem to function how they do that i i you know i would never know because that wasn't my mo but yeah, um it's just crazy you know heartbreaking none nonetheless but uh I'm glad that uh, Kevin Derrick, his team, and and especially the vulnerability that you know Pat Morita's uh, widow to uh, bring this story to light, and that Pat really did want people to know that the greatest stuff can come out of 
of dark times, but you have to have hope and you have to work for it. And he wanted his story to hopefully inspire uh, others to know that they can get sober unlike him that, you know, resulted in taking his life. So, Well, this was definitely an inspiring story, so uh, very well done. Very, uh, It was very well put together. Yeah, if you have yet to watch the documentary, make sure, sure you do. It's on demand, uh, pretty cheap rent. Uh, I, I ended up buying it because I've watched it multiple times, uh, you know, more than Miyagi. Check it out. Anything else, Mikey? No, I'm going home. On that note, folks, keep knocking doors down. Fifty-one fifty is a lifestyle. We believe in pushing yourself, finding your passion, knowing your dreams, and working hard. Always striving to make those dreams a reality. We believe life's too short to sit back and say, "What if?" Go after it, grab it, and make it happen. Being fifty-one fifty is committing to that long, hard road ahead that you know is going to be tough, but the most rewarding. That's living the madness. That's fifty-one fifty. If you're living the fifty-one fifty lifestyle, then celebrate by rocking the goods. Listeners of Knocking Doors Down, head over to 5150ltm.com. That website again, 51FIFTYLTM.com. This podcast contains the views and opinions of the Knocking Doors Down hosts and their guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is sharing their unique perspective, please consult your healthcare professional for any medical questions. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and website are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors. Privacy is of the utmost importance to us. For those wishing anonymity, people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect confidentiality at the request of certain guests. This website or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast or website. In no way does listening, reading, emailing, or interacting on social media with their content establish a doctor-patient relationship. If you find any errors in any of the content of this podcast or blogs, please send a message through the contact page. This podcast is owned by KDD Media Company.